I tell people, if you have a job, join a union. And if you don't have a union, start one. That's actually a quote from uh, Robert Reich, who's a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley uh, and the former U.S. Secretary of Labor. But in the context of our conversation today, uh, he also um, went to the Yale Law School. This is The Usable Past with Marina Hikian, and today I'm joined by P.J. Ryan. And if there was ever a story full of truth, strategy, and success, stretching from the usable past to today, workers, jobs, and unions is a big one. So union membership has been important to me. Um, my father um, remembered fire hoses in the winter and dogs let loose on a picket line at the Inca Rayon factory in Asheville, North Carolina, his job before joining the U.S. Navy in World War II. As a college student working for J.P. Stevens Textiles in Greensboro, North Carolina, in a part-time job, and as a federal employee, I belong to a union, AFGE, American Federation of Government Employees at U.S. HUD, where I worked during the Obama years. Important to my spouse, who I met just before he walked the picket line for the Philadelphia Daily Newspaper Guild in 1985, and then in 2014 as an adjunct professor at Howard University, where he helped organize the successful vote for unionizing with SEIU. And now, even to my son, an associate professor at a union shop, California University, making enough money to actually pay the rent. I'm joined by some very successful union organizers of Local 34 at Yale who are living the success and strength of unions every day in the hallowed halls of Yale University. Um, there's, there's some interesting history here, and that is that in the 80s, unions were very strong. Uh, wages grew in tandem with the economy, and um, nearly one-third of all the workers in the U.S. were unionized. And this gave workers across the U.S. a lot of strength. Even those who weren't unionized benefited. But in starting in the 80s, Excuse me, from the 1950s. It was in the 80s that we began to see the grand decline. And with uh, increasing ferocity since then, private sector employees have fought against unions. Corporate raiders demanded that companies boost share prices by busting unions or moving to non-union states. And of course, it was President Ronald Reagan who uh, fired the federal assault uh, when he fired the air con traffic controllers, from which I don't think they've ever really recovered, right? And they launched an all-out assault on workers' rights, concentrating even more power in the hands of corporate executives. All of this to give you an idea of why the whole issue of corporate power and the lack of decent w wages for workers uh, exists today. So basically, anti-worker corporations and politicians then joined together to stop workers from joining together, and that was a real pivotal moment. So we now know that as union membership declined, middle-income, middle-class incomes began to shrink. Big, big impact. And the two trends are the exact mirror image of each other. So. We get to the hallowed halls of Yale. 
Um, unions historically have balanced the power of workers with corporations. But labor organizing at Yale goes back to the 20s and 30s. During the Depression, um, Yale was doing, quote, as little as possible. But during the time, this time, and then later, moving full forward after 911, it wasn't a question of money because the alumni donations actually increased every time there was a national event. And that had to do with who Yale was. Um, many presidents, a concentration of power across the U.S. Um, Yale is rich. He's rich, so rich during the Depression that they built the nation's largest library, the world's largest gym, and built nine residential new, new residential colleges. At that time, male dorm janitors made 20 bucks a week and were laid off during the summer. In fact, Yale once threatened to dismiss divinity students inquiring who were asking what workers were being paid because they were being paid so little. So we fast forward from that little picture of Yale's um, history to today. So I am really excited to introduce um, organizers and members, some retirees, some local members of Local 34, which is a union at uh, Yale representing clerical and technical workers, right? Yep. So, Aldo, how did you how did you get here? How did and, I get yeah, here? Yeah, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Aldo Cupo. Um, I grew up in New Haven. I've lived there all my life. Um, I think with the union, there was a very interesting kind of local connection when I uh, when the union drive was starting. And what I mean is. I had gone to an experimental high school, a high school in the community. I had gone to Wilbur Cross, and then this was a smaller, more, as I said, more sort of experimental late 60s, early 70s. And I became friends with a lot of people. And when the Union Drive was starting with Local 35 deciding, what had happened was there were two clerical Union Drives, and both of them lost— and then the UAW was starting to organize, again, sort of early 80s. And they were doing – the local 35 people were noticing that the same kinds of things were being done and what they considered mistakes. And what I mean is um, the UAW – and I have nothing against the UAW. I'm just trying to be factual. Right. Now, the, let's, let's just stop for a minute because sure. we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. UAW is the United Auto Workers. Right. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, when you've been doing this as long as uh, you know you have and others, there are, right. there are a lot of, lot of words that get thrown around. Mm -hmm. But let me just stop at that point. Mm -hmm. And Cheryl, can you – are you a New Haven resident? And I – I have to note this is this is one of the features of Local 34. Aldo and Cheryl met on the picket right, line. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we met in the in the in the organizing. We were leaders in the organizing, but we started dating during the strike. Thank God. Thank God for a little <laughs> diversion, right? right? Well, we worked in opposite sides of the campus. It was except for the strike unlikely that we would, would have, have enough been. time to get to know one another as well as we did. And you've been married how many years now? <laughs> or 33. 33. Congratulations. Thanks. Wow. 
So, Cheryl, you grew up in New Haven as well? Well, I grew up in East Haven, which is a suburb of New Haven. Um, I was I started to work in Yale in 1976. Okay. I had uh, my father was a machinist. He worked for Pratt and Whitney, which is a part of United Technologies, and he was a union right. member there. Um, like Aldo said, early on in um, in the university union uh, history, there were two separate union drives trying to organize the clerical and technical workers. And I so, happened to come to Yale at a time when the first the second drive was underway. Okay, so let me let me just get two pieces of clarity here. One is, what was your job at oh, Yale? Okay, very good. So I was a research assistant. I worked in a medical laboratory, uh, basic science laboratory. So I came straight from college to to Yale. Okay, and I was working in the um, in the clinical immunology department. Okay, but you were in was the research lab. Research lab, okay. right? Okay, that's how the the clerical and technical came. Yeah, together. that's the where the technical right. part. So, Aldo, what was your job? I worked at the Beinecke Rare Book Library, so I was a library uh, public services services assistant when I first started at Yale. And that largest library that they built during the Depression. Right. It was across. We were across from that. We were the rare book and manuscript division. Oh, okay. But I I did work. You know, I knew a lot of people in the Sterling Library. Okay. So we have a third person with us, um, Steve Fortes. And uh, Steve, good morning. And you want to introduce yourself? Good morning. How are you? We're good. We're good. So, Steve, you you grew up in New Haven as well? Yes, I did. Yeah, uh, like like Aldo, I'm a lifelong uh, New Haven resident. Um, actually, both my parents were uh, also in unions. My father worked for uh, um, uh, uh, now defunct uh, uh, toy manufacturer called A.C. Gilbert. And he oh, was okay. in the union there. And uh, my mother worked at, there was a, a big store that was in downtown New Haven that was called Learners, and uh, she was in the union there. So you came out of a, of a union household. Do you think that's how you made it to college? Because you, your family had a working wage or not? Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Because it does make a difference. If families have working wages, their children generally... Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Cheryl, you went to college, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Although, did you go to college? Yeah, too? I went to Southern Connecticut State College. Right. My dad worked for the railroad and was also a union member. Oh, okay. So let me just ask one quick question of each of the three of you. What do you know? Do you remember when you all started the drive for Local mm-hmm. Thirty Four? What your starting salary was? What you were making an hour or? I more remember when we went on strike, and I had been at Yale for maybe seven years at that point. I was making twelve eight or twelve three, something like that. Twelve thousand three hundred dollars. Right. That's not twelve dollars an hour. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not doing too just, good here. I mean, given given the drive I, I, for fifteen dollars an hour, we were thinking, oh, seven years. But ago, I but more remember 12, that when we were on strike and had been there for some years. How about you, Cheryl? What were you making? I made about thir- <clears throat> excuse me about thirteen thousand four hundred dollars. Research assistants had a t- we made a little bit more in the medical school than in other other job titles on the rest of the campus. And Steve. I was uh, uh, eleven thousand a year. And where were you? Where were you working? I was working in the bursar's office. I worked um, in uh, student loan collection. Oh, that's right. You got to try to chase the loans of a lot of famous people who went to Yale, <laughs> right? 
Wow. Yeah, there were, there were a few here and there, yeah. Well, um, we, um, we would love to hear those stories, but, you know, uh, I'm sure. So 11,000, 13,000, and 12,000 when you started. Okay, so the big strike, the big organizing strike happened in... Um, 71, 72, 73? That would have been Local 35. Uh, that was Okay, yeah. so let's bring Local 35 to the table. Sure. Who, local, because as I understand it, Local 34 would have never made it without Local 35. Correct. And so what was Local 35? Local 35 was the blue-collar division at Yale, and it had a few different departments, custodial services, the dining halls and the physical plant, uh, guys that went around and were either plumbers, electricians, and so on. But also, and I was just going to add, I had an uncle who was on my father's side who was a painter at Yale. So I was familiar with people working at Yale and being in Local 35. I also had relatives like aunts and uncles who were in custodial services. So it was the blue collar and we were the white collar. And that's an important thing about when we start to talk about successful organizing, the fact that the blue-collar workers and the white-collar workers were able to support each other. Yes. That was, that was just a really, really important thing. So they had gone on strike. Um, they had a pretty strong union, but mm-hmm. they had also struggled the entire time with getting contract renewals. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the folks where I think we mentioned earlier that, that the uh, janitors right. in the dorms were making 20 bucks an hour. Right. Uh, yeah. 20 even, bucks an hour? 20 I bucks mean, 20 week. bucks a week. That was in uh, during the Depression. No one could live on 20 bucks a week. Right. So we could, we could move right into Local 34, and I think it's important to note that Local 35, uh, which was a different union, they, they were Teamsters? No. They no. belong to the same international union as Local 34. Which, which is, right now, it's called Unite Here. Okay. Um, previously, it, that was a merger some years ago. Previously, it was the hotel and restaurant workers. Okay. And this is the same union that we heard about recently in Nevada? Correct. That's correct. Okay. That's our union. We're all part of the same right. international That's union. That's the same international. Right. That's the one that has provided health care for all their workers in Las Vegas. In Las correct. Vegas. Yeah. Unite here. Right. Okay. So what I'd like to do... Oh. PJ. I have a question. Absolutely. For, for those of us who are not as familiar with the union versus union conversation, what's the difference between uh, Teamster versus actual union? Well, they're just different international unions. Generally, unions uh, are formed around the type of work that is being done. So Teamsters are truck drivers, you know, mainly people that do that kind of work. Um they're in many unions, even though there might be like our industry is essentially hotels and restaurants, and it's big in Las Vegas because of the casinos and the hotels. But sometimes there might even be some divisions in the Teamsters I do not know that might be a clerical 
um, unit. But in general, un- unions in this country are sort of divided by the type of work. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't it doesn't mean exclusively. It made sense for us to join the hotel and restaurant employees because that's who Local 35 was aligned with. Okay. And in fact. All of the unions then come together through the AFL-CIO, which is right. kind of an umbrella. Right. And some unions have come and gone as Correct. a member of AFL-CIO. That's right. right. So where, where does – how? And so the decision you all made was mm-hmm. to affiliate with Local 35 in the same union right. because that made, that made you stronger? Yeah. As I started to say, the two union drives that lost and then there was an additional clerical that was different from the hotel and restaurant employees, there was an assessment that the wrong things were being done. And what I mean is there was an appeal to we have great lawyers, we're going to, you know, we have a great history and all you got to do is sign a card and we'll do stuff for you. But when Local 35 said, oh, wait a minute, in order to win at Yale, you have to have a grassroots organizing committee in each department. Because when the managers start to say, you don't want to join the union, you're going to have to go on strike, you're going to have to do this, you're going to lose your flex time, you're going to, that you need somebody there to combat it. And if you just have an international that will provide lawyers for you and this and that, you know, it's just not going to work. So Local 35, it made so much sense to me when I was first approached. I thought, wow, this is a lot of work, but they're being real with me. So one of the things that I've heard many of the union, and and Steve, you may want to kind of chime in at this point because I think I heard it first from you, was that as you all started to organize, this is a really key difference you didn't say we'll do you know we're going to take care of it the the word that i heard was that we're going to show you how to organize correct yeah. we're going to show you how to do it for yourselves right yes yeah, that's correct um and they did uh, do that they you know they said uh, you know this is this is your union you know um you know whatever uh needs to be done or whatever you know you're after you're going to have to do it yourself we'll we'll give you the tools to do that um, and and that's how we started out with a lot of you know people joining committees and learning how to do um, specific things so that we could move forward. So I'm going to leap forward because when you talk about giving the you know teaching people the tools, the way I have read this is that Yale, it's the Yale local 35, local 34 folks kind of came up with their own tools that were yet to be uh, repeated in some places. So I want to leap forward because there was a strike that led to the actual uh, first contract of Local 34, and that was in 1984? 1985. 84, 85. Okay. But the most recent strike was in 2003? Yes, Correct. that was the last okay. one. Okay, that was the last one. So I want to start there because this is an amazing story. Um, in 2003, you were up for a new contract, right? Mm-hmm. But you had also been trying to organize with the, the hospital workers and the graduate assistants or graduate students, right? Graduate they, teachers. The graduate yeah. teachers, which had not gone well. 
Um, but by this time, you had had a contract for, what, 20-something years. Mm -hmm. So things were better, much better than the 12, 11, and 13,000 that you were making yes. in mm -hmm. 85. And there had been, by this time, there had been how many couples who got married as a result <laughs> of the strike? Steve and Edith did, because Edith worked at the library, right? And there were how many yeah. more? I think you all counted the marriages, right? Oh, I'm sure there are many more than even we know of. But in our immediate group of friends, we have at least five couples that <laughs> got married wow. and as a result of at least five. And I'm sure there are more. I mean, um, my daughter currently is married to a university employee, and they're both very active in the union. So, well, uh, I mean, it, you know, it becomes it becomes a lifetime uh, commitment. Mm -hmm. But in 2003, I heard about this event where five or six uh, folks who were retired union members, um, and if I remember correctly, the amount of their their pension was like three hundred dollars a month, six hundred dollars a month, and they were trying to live. Basically, on no money, if I yes, got yes. that correctly. Mm -hmm. And um, during this time, Yale's endowment jumped to over $11 billion. And it was being managed by this guy who was considered this finance kind of guru named David Swenson. He's still there. He's still, still there. It. Still managing. Yes. But what was... Ironic and interesting is that the pension money of the Yale union members was being invested by Swenson and had done incredibly well. You'd made a lot of money. This was in the early 2000s, right? So that was a good thing. The problem was that none of the retirees had had an increase in their pension benefits in 20 years. And so this money was sitting there, and it belonged to the employees, which obviously I guess David Swimson didn't think it did, or Yale didn't think it did. So with a strike pending, seven or eight folks who were over 70 years old uh, went to Mr. Swimson's office and asked to meet with him about his pension. And this is what I mean by the tools and the strategies that mm -hmm. Local 34 use that you don't see very often. And right. they asked to see Mr. Swinson and were told that, well, he's not available. You know, he just can't meet with you. And um, the, pension, the pension holder union members said, well, we'll be glad to wait for him. Right. right. And five days later, mm -hmm. they walked out yes. to 3,000 striking uh, local 34 union members and supporters, um, they literally sat in in Swenson's office, and he finally agreed to meet with them. Uh, he met with them. didn't mean very much, but uh, that then facilitated a huge event. And tell me, is it really true that at one point there was a march of over 10,000 people I don't know the exact numbers, but we've, you know, had many marches with lots and lots of community support. That was, there was a big Labor Day march. Mm -hmm. um, and then September 15th is when I understand there were like over 10,000 people 
many of whom were union members from all over the Northeast. Right. Yep, people came by busloads to New Haven right. to participate. And at this point, over 100 faculty members at Yale said to the Yale administration, uh, go to binding arbitration. The union has been willing to go to binding arbitration. And what does binding arbitration mean? It means that you have a third party. Right. Mm -hmm. You work out the details and everybody has to agree because it's, quote, binding, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. so you, put your, you put your best last offer forward, right? Okay. And the third party makes a decision based on you, what you consider to be your best last offer. Right. And, um, and Yale's the university does not... Um, agree that binding arbitration is to their uh, benefit. <laughs> We've so, always been willing to put our best last offer forward for binding arbitration. Right, and that's always been. So these professors said, look, the union's always been willing to do that. And then on September 15th, there were 10,000 people in the street, and two days later, the New Haven city government handed Yale a bill for $100,000 for police protection during that that. And um, as I understand it, the, during this time, there was something called the wall of shame, where the pension holders sat in front of a wall that had the amount of their years at of, service. of service and their pensions, and they sat in chairs and knitted <laughs> in front of the wall of shame. Um, two days later, Yale settled. And the result of that settlement, which is just stunning, was that there was a pay increase over a period of time of about 46%. Yeah. And um, most, many of the pension holders' pensions doubled. Yes, because the, the, we have a defined pension plan, which is very rare these days, uh, so that it's a pension that's paid out uh, from one, the time you retire until you die. Right. And it's based on your years of service and how much money you make the best of your last five years of employment. But it's broken down so that there are multipliers. So say, for instance, the first $20,000 of your $60,000 annual salary would be multiplied times 2.4%. And then the next amount of money would be multiplied times. So the multipliers is what was so radically different in this contract settlement because prior to that, the multipliers were very small, but the multipliers changed. So they increase, or yeah. yes, they increased right. so that you're so the substantially so that by the time um, you looked at what the monthly payout would be, it was substantially larger than had been previously because of the change in the multipliers. Because prior to that, the average pension was three hundred and forty-nine dollars a month. Yeah. Now, I realize a lot went on. Mm -hmm to get to the point that in 2003 you could you could have this kind of contract victory because you didn't give up anything, as I understand, right. during that, that right. particular contract. And it's a long contract. It lasts for how many years? Five. I think five. it was a five-year long. That was extraordinarily long. So that would have taken you to 2018, which is today. Close well, we must day. have our numbers a little wrong, yeah. but that's okay. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You know, it's 2008. I'm mm, sorry. And right. what ha what's happened since 2008? What's Contracts happened? have been renegotiated. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I, we I, haven't had a strike since 2003. Right, that's important. That was the last time that we had that kind of um, 
discord. <laughs> We've had plenty of disagreements, but we haven't had a so strike. So at the, at the time of the 2003 strike, the contrast of the average Yale employee pension was $349 a month, and the president of Yale, went, in addition to his benefits package, retired with a $42,000 a year pension. Um, and that oh, was no, way more than in, that. In 2003. 11? Was it even higher than that? Oh, I thought it was four hundred and something thousand dollars. Maybe it was four hundred and twenty thousand <laughs> a year in pension. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's what it was. <laughs> okay, then that was a typo somewhere along the way. There was uh, there was one person who was working um, in the library that after twenty five years before the two thousand three strike, her annual pension would have been a grand total of nine thousand two hundred fifty two dollars a year, and that was in two thousand three. Um, Random question. Uh, mm -hmm. For someone who's of the younger persuasion like myself, mm -hmm. when you when the union actually goes on strike and you mm -hmm. are retired, mm -hmm. how does that actually affect you? Does that change your pension in the moment? No. So mm -hmm. if you so I'm currently retired. Mm -hmm. I retired a year ago and I have I'm drawing on my pension, this defined pension plan. And um, if the unions were to go on strike, um, I would still receive my pension. My pension comes through. The know, full amount. Yeah, I don't see any reason yeah. why not, unless okay. I personally decided that I was not going to take my pension or if I took my pension and donated it to mm. the strike fund, the monies would still come to me. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, the university uh, would be within their purview if they wanted to try to change something about our benefits. Um, we aren't ourselves bargaining. Retirees don't bargain for their any any okay. longer, right? Okay. So whatever benefits a retiree um, receives, um, in part, um, is dependent on what's happening with the organizing currently of the current union members right, who are part now, of the negotiating committee. Now, Aldo, you're yeah. still employed. Steve, right. you're retired. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But all three of you were key leaders mm -hmm. and players and troublemakers generally mm -hmm. um, in the strike mm -hmm. of 1985 and what led up to that. Mm -hmm. So set the we'll set the stage just a little bit because the um, at the time that Local 34 started its big push in 1984, 82, 83, 84, mm. yeah, 80, that led to the strike, right. it was an 82% female workforce and 14% were African-American, and the starting salary for a clerical and technical worker then was about 13, they said, 13424, but that's an average. No, that's incorrect. That's I wrong? I don't think so. I think it's lower than that. I think that. it was lower than yeah. that? Well, all we know is that in 1981, a New England family of four needed $16,000 to maintain a low standard of living. So... Um, what were the major, what were the, I mean, money is one thing, right? Benefits is another thing. But I think, um, PJ, you ask an interesting question about what happens to retirees when, when there is a strike. At the time that you all were organizing, if you had to say there was two or three things that were the keys to getting people to not be afraid and to join, what what would they be? 
I, I would say so, wages. Wages? Yeah. Okay. To me, that was my main issue. I felt like here I am in the Beinecke Library, the rare book and manuscript library. The, the, it's priceless. They spend so much money. I could see Yale's wealth. It's like being at Fort Knox, and I'm making like, you know, $12,000 annually. So for me and a lot of people, money was a very key issue, especially when looking at Yale's ability to pay. Okay. Well, Cheryl, what would you for say? For me, um, so um, when the organizing drive got started, I was working in the psychiatry department, which is at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. And two years prior to that, I had been working in the genetics department. And as a research assistant at Yale and really in almost all academic environments, the monies that are available to pay our salaries come from uh, federal grants or private foundation money. So that money comes into the university and then the university you know, gives it to us through a paycheck. But it's the responsibility of the principal investigator of the laboratory to bring in the money to run the laboratory and to pay the employees. So um, I learned through a friend of mine uh, that I was going to get laid off because it was learned from the business office that my boss, my principal investigator, had not received additional funding to continue the work in the laboratory that I worked in. But there was no mechanism at that time to, uh, to inform me of the fact that there wasn't going to be any money to continue my employment. <laughs> there was, no, uh, there was no, um, no safeguards built in through the Human Resources Department for how I might uh, begin to look for another so job. So you were going to basically so lose your job. I was going to lose my job, and it was only because I had a friend who worked in the business office and was very aware of the finances for our laboratory that I even came to understand that there wasn't so, going to be enough money. So could you say that the the motivating factor for you there was, I mean, it was yeah, money, job security. But, it was, but it was job security, it was job security and security. fear. Right. So I ended up through that circumstance, using my own resources and my friends and connections, because I'd been at the university for a handful of years at that right. point, uh, to try to find another job, which I then did, which brought me to the Connecticut Mental Health Center into that particular job in psychiatry. And when I was approached by you know someone about talking about the union, for me the first thing that was of interest to me was how do I how do I figure out how to not have right. something like that happen again, so that I know in advance. Um, what uh, monies are available, how long my job is going to be secure, and how, if necessary, I can get the help to try to find something right. else so I can continue my so, employment at Yale. Steve, what about what about you? What do you think the big motivation was for you? Okay, well, obviously money, because that's for everyone. Um, but there were two others for me. One, one was uh, um, uh, having a, a, a workable grievance procedure and workers' rights. Um, we had uh, two women that were in one of one of my departments um, that both had um, you know, extraordinary circumstances at the same time. One had uh, um, had cancer and had to go in for a double mastectomy, and her her coworker was in a car accident and fell off a boot onto the railroad tracks. And and the 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 big supervisor wanted to fire both of them for not being at work. Oh, oh, okay. You know, he said they were, they were, you know, they were, you know, that the department, you know, wasn't functioning because there was no one there, and they were taking too much time off. and wanted to get rid of them. Um, there wasn't really, a, you know, at that point, you know, it was before we had settled the first contract. But the uh, the woman who was our uh, our lead organizer, Madeline Danover, uh, managed to rally us all together so that we would have a um, um, a building wide meeting with the with this particular. Uh, supervisor, 
to talk about how you know ridiculous you know his claims were, and that you know we were going to band together to make sure that these women you know were not fired from their jobs for you know for uh, legitimate reasons and everything. And I think he was like so taken aback that he would do that. And then there were other supervisors in the building who actually were on our side as well. And we sort of, you know, we saw, you know, the power that we had, you know, being able to do that and being able to band together and being a, you know, a solid unit, you know, that I, for me, that was something that was very important that we needed to get. The other in word... In case there were things like that that happened in other places. Right. Because the other word that I heard from a lot of folks that I talked to was just the whole issue of respect. Yes. And the yes. feeling respect. that Yale had no respect for its workforce. Right. So did that yeah. have did that have an impact? Do you think on um, African American workers at Yale that was different, or do you think that was a shared a shared issue? Because there were a lot of African American workers who had migrated north from the South, particularly from North Carolina, as I understand it, that worked in Local 35, which was the blue-collar union. Um, but do you think that was an issue, that the, that the issue of respect was kind of universal, or was it something that surfaced more for the African-American workers or I, women I, workers? I'm, I'm just I think curious. it was universal. Yeah, I um, would say it was universal. One of the things yeah. I— It manifested itself in different ways for different groups, groups. of us, but I think it is a— you know, as a as a theme, and what? How were you able to overcome those differences, and kind of keep your eye on the prize of the organizing? I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, well, I, I think kind of talking to each other that that was one of the main things. Okay. Getting to um, know each you other. Know, every, everybody mm-hmm. was like in their own little work units, and you know, you were you were sort of encouraged to like you know not talk about a lot of things, especially like salary. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of times you'd get supervisors that would say, like, well, I'm going to give you a little more than I'm going to give this other person everything, but make sure you don't say anything. And But then once we started talking to each other, we found out like, that that's not what was happening. Okay. You know, that you get, we were all pretty much in the, in the, in the same boat and at the, at the lower end of the salary range. And how long did the, I mean, how long was it before... I mean, when you finally got to the vote, because there's mm-hmm. a process of organizing, right? Mm-hmm. And people have to agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want a union, and then there's a vote, and right. the vote right. is is done by the National Labor Relations Board, right? Right, that's right. Correct. So I I think we organized for about three years um, before we petitioned for an election and won that election, and we had 2,600 people. We won by. 39 votes. So it was, and it was down the line, as I said earlier, that our whole strategy was getting people in the workplace. So we had whole departments that we, for whatever reason, couldn't get a representative, an organizing committee person. And those people all got scared and voted no. It was almost, you could go department by department. People like in the bursars, because Steve was there and he had other people too, you know, they had a very good vote, you know, people voted. And we had people be very public about whether it wasn't like a secret. We had people sign things. We had a poster that came out that had, we just, you know, instead of all this 
information on a poster. We just had our names. It was almost like the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. The the title of the poster was We Believe in Ourselves. I mean, we had a variety of different mechanisms that we used over the course of the years of organizing to become more and more public in the Yale community and the New Haven community about about our intent to be a union. Um, But we had this one poster that said We Believe in Ourselves, and every I mean, we, I don't even know how many hundreds yeah. of signatures was, were on this thing. Facsimiles of people's signatures, signatures. is really powerful. It was so massive, like, Whoa. Too. And we had people wear buttons. I mean, it wasn't like we're all secret and no, it, somebody's we doing it for there. us. We were, we were there. And one of the things I had wanted to say about the salaries issue, as Steve was saying, we found out by talking to each other, people, there was minimums and maximums in the labor grades which gives one the impression that if I stay here long, I'm at the minimum now, but I'll go up to the maximum. But what we had found pre the union contract was everybody just rised up to the minimums. So we were all kind of clustered in you the know, in the, in the, at the bottom of the labor grades. And it was just this weird like mirage that you were going to get anywhere. What we did to deal with that was we had raises that had two components. There was an across-the-board component that everybody got, and then there was what we called a step. You got valued for your years of service. So somebody who had like 10 years of service in the first contract got phased in a very big raise over a number of years um, to make up for that they'd been at the bottom all the time. So there was a way we devised through the union. We would have never gotten a way to get from the minimum to the maximum in your labor grade. And that was that was a big point of controversy, I think, when you all were, were negotiating a contract. But let me let me also say that during the time that you were trying to get to the point of voting for a contract, a bunch of things happened. I mean, one was that, um, you know, support began to come from, from all over the, the, the nation, mm-hmm. and people would show up to support. Um, Yale hired one of the worst or mm-hmm. most, yep. most <coughs> difficult uh, anti-labor right. uh, law firms yep. in the nation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Mayor Koch showed up and opposed the union. At the same time, um, busloads <laughs> of professors and academics showed up from New York City mm-hmm. on one occasion to support. So, and and students students mm-hmm. would do everything from give you money to spit on you. Yeah, right. It right? ranged. I think the thing people responded to was. From the beginning, too, in the organizing drive, what what drew me to the local 35, even though there were friends of mine and I had relatives in 35, so it made a lot of sense, was they go, we have a strategy that can win. If we all, you know, build the union in our department so that it's not just something that people sign a card secretly and stay in the dark. If we actually build the union, Yale has an Achilles heel, which is their reputation. And they have so much money that none of this is about money. It's all about power. So I think we drew national attention because you had mentioned earlier, Marie, that it was like 82% female workforce because it's clerical. So we made two big points. One, that females were paid 59 cents to the dollar for males. So that was an issue 
pay equity. And the second was um, the most responsible female jobs should be paid on par with the more traditionally responsible male jobs, which was, you know, the blue-collar guys who were electricians, plumbers, and so on. So when we confronted Yale with that, their answer was, well, that's a societal problem that we have no control over and can't do anything about. And we were like, oh, no, you can. So that's why I think in terms of the people that were supporting us, we drew a lot of national attention because of those issues, you know, like pay equity Mm -hmm. and sort of like treating the most responsible female jobs, which, again, comes back to respect. So let me ask a question, because I wanted to piggyback off of what uh, Marie was saying and your responses both, and this is you too, um, you as well, uh, um, Steve, on the phone. Um, It sounds like, from my perspective, listening in, that there may have been some form of nepotism that was going on. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and who... <laughs> okay. Oh, yes. So who, who were the ones that were actually benefiting because they were making these choices to go along with whatever kept everything quiet? So just in terms of, like, for the in a research environment, and so it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't uh, it was commonplace mm-hmm. for the principal investigators who run the laboratory to hire their family members to come and be either the administrative assistant for the principal investigator or that person's child who could come swing in and work in the laboratory. And so and, – and they'd be on the payroll, mm-hmm. right? And so because we didn't have any transparency in how much money we were making, because at that time it was all big secret, as Aldo spoke about – uh, you'd have somebody who had been working in the laboratory for 10, 15 years, and they had no idea that the person who had just walked in the door six months ago was making as much or more than they were, hmm. right, including the spouse, right? And so, and and then raises would come along, right? So that was the whole thing, right? How much of a raise are you going to get compared to somebody else? Well, of course, there wasn't a mechanism for how to make that fair. Mm-hmm. And, and as we would learn as the drive went on and became, things became, we talked to each other and started to learn more about each other. We also learned about these discrepancies in this, you know, this very unfair system that was just allowed to continue. I mean, it was just, it had always been that way, you know, and it was just, the, that's kind of how they wanted it to keep going, right, for the benefit of a small group of people. But as soon as we started to talk to one another, like Steve said, and we began to get to know one another, and we began to trust each other mm-hmm. and understood that if there were ever going to be any changes to be made here at Yale University, that we were going to have to be together as a team and that we were going to have to be able to work together in concert to make sure that we could make some changes. Because otherwise, it was our employment there was you know, certainly for Steve and Aldo and I at a certain point in time, we understood that if there wasn't a union, ultimately, if we didn't win, we would likely be fired. <laughs> right. So, uh, so we had there were lots of motivation for us to so make sure the, that we could be successful. One of the things that comes to mind when I think about what Local 34 went through, as well as Local 35, and I and I have to put a little footnote here, Local 35. When you all reached the point of having to go on strike mm-hmm. the first time, um, the Local 35 membership voted to increase their dues 
two dollars. Oh, that was yeah. before that. Yeah, before, before that, it was during the organizing. During the organized, two dollars mm-hmm. a month to mm-hmm. provide money to support mm-hmm. the um, organizing of Local Thirty Four, which, mm-hmm. when I think about it, is just amazing. This is may not sound like a lot, but two dollars a month out of a member's pocket was a lot. It, that's that. That actually is a lot, especially yeah. well. That sounds like that's a precaution put for the future. In mm-hmm. case something bad happens, let's you know. If, in case something changes later down the road, we'll just increase it. Right. Um, right. Well, we're... and and the other thing they did is local thirty five found over nine hundred, as I read somewhere, over nine hundred contacts throughout the Yale University community where people were working, and the local thirty five contact list. They would they would use as an organizing tool to try to get to members in certain parts of the university where you didn't have a lot of strength at that point. Yes. So it was like my brother, my mm-hmm. uncle, my uncle's mm-hmm. friend, my boyfriend, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Right. And that that would make a huge difference, but. When you got down to the nitty-gritty, you used some of the same leadership from Local 35 and Local 34, right? Yep. He he became what the – he was the business agent? John, John, John Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, wh- and what was his role with 35 and 34? Because that's pretty unusual too. Yeah, John was – again, I think it was almost really John Wilhelm and this guy Carl Lechow who – Carl Lechow worked for Local 217. I don't want to get too confusing here. But that was the local in Connecticut and Rhode Island that actually organized hotels and restaurants. Okay. That was not Yale. But most of the 217 organizers, as Steve had mentioned, Madeline Janover – were our organizers. They were loaned I to see. they were loaned, loaned to, yeah, to, to this effort. Um, and uh, John was just so smart and looking ahead, saying, "Look, we're a group of a thousand people in a community where there's twenty six hundred. Now we're like three thousand some odd clericals." We can't keep going on strike for 10 weeks every – I mean, we have got to branch out. We have got to organize. And we have followed through with that when you talk about we don't have a – we increased our dues some years ago to add more staff people, but also to fund and support. We we work very closely with a community organizing group called New Haven Rising, and they do all kinds of stuff in the community. We've tried to get people to get jobs in the community. We connect New Haven with the union. We're not this union that was like, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're just coming into New Haven, doing our job and splitting. Certainly many of us live in New Haven, though not the majority. But we've made a, a huge commitment to trying to say we care about what happens to our city and Yale needs to be a better neighbor. And because Yale needs to hire more people in the community, especially the, the communities right around the university. The ironic thing is those are the most lowest socioeconomic mm-hmm. communities right around Yale there. And people were like, I can never get a job here, blah, blah, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm very proud of our union that we have because we see it all connected. We help them on things. They help us on things because when we've had rallies, that's a lot of people in the New Haven community. They're mad at Yale because they see, like, I, I'm living in this thing. I, may, I make nothing. I'm working at Subway, you know. 
So, um, so we have all, I've been very proud of our union and internationally we're that way as well, where we connect the community with the, with the employer. And again, what I keep trying to say is we have a huge advantage because we have an employer that has an Achilles heel, which is their reputation. They can't look like they're a sweatshop somewhere mm-hmm. and that they're horrible to people. And they have the money. I mean, their their endowment with all of these great contracts, their endowment has over the years grown now to thirty two billion. So that means that since wow, since two thousand three, right, right, it's gone from eleven billion to thirty two to thirty two billion. They took a whack in two thousand eight, like everybody else did, but David Swenson is a genius, financial genius, and he not only recovered what they lost in two thousand eight. But they they grew beyond expectation. So now we're at thirty two billion in their endowment. So, so let me just ask this connection, which kind of brings us once again to today. I've only recently heard that the union was successful in negotiating an agreement with Yale mm-hmm. that all non academic jobs are offered to New Haven residents first. N- no, no, it's no. not exactly okay. that. that. That would be amazing. But that would, it, that, exactly that. That would. <laughs> it is, wanna, it is. You want to explain it? Yeah, so I can talk about it a little bit. So um, one of the things that happened in, uh, in 2011, 2012, was, as Aldo discussed earlier, that the union has always felt a responsibility to New Haven. We're New Haven residents, but the community itself has suffered for years of course, because the university has a special status, so they don't pay taxes, right? They're not, it's a nonprofit organization. But and it's so the like, biggest employer. It Correct. Is, yeah, besides the, the, besides the hospital system, that's true. Um, so they don't pay taxes. And so, of course, they, they live in this city. They're a neighbor, but they're not always a good neighbor. And, uh, and access to jobs at Yale has always been a struggle and challenging. And so, um, so the unions, in partnership with New Haven Rising um, and with the leadership of the city government, New Haven city government, um, uh, started, a, started a project, um, became partners in a project um, which was then called New Haven Works. And so this was a nonprofit organization. It was umbrellaed under the uh, Economic Development Corporation for a number of years until it was able to become its own nonprofit but through financial support of, of this organization, it was designed to be a place where New Haven residents, uh, exclusive to New Haven residents, could come and receive counseling and assistance in searching for jobs and mm-hmm. in, in job and in, you know everything you can imagine. Resume writing, cover letter writing, interview uh, preparation, every possible clothing, you name it. In this one spot, New Haven Rising. So the university, I'm sorry, New Haven Works, New Haven Rising kind of came out of that. Right. Um, so, but and Yale, Yale became through embarrassment right. <laughs> um, a financial partner in this as well, and with the expectation being that since it was the largest employer in the city, that in fact people who came to New Haven Works and received this assistance that they would have a path to employment at Yale University. And so that existed for several years um, with a mixed review on how well Yale was doing at hiring New Haven residents. And there became um, a very large uh, frustration on the part of the community um, uh, because the university was uh, giving a lot of lip service to that. 
process but and putting in, money in, but not actually hiring people. Right. Not hiring. Right. And so, um, so there had been an intention to have a huge protest and to have a sit-down um, civil, civil disobedience, disobedience. Yeah. smack dab in the center of what is the the heart of Yale, which is in New Haven called the Broadway area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right right next outside of the brand new Apple store, right around the corner from the largest gymnasium in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, smack dab in the middle, right there, have it. And well, they did not want that as you could imagine. And, um, and through some negotiation of leadership of the unions and of New Haven Rising, the university made a promise that they would hire um, a thousand people over the period of four years, but with a commitment that 500 of that those thousand persons would come from the what we call the neighborhoods of need in New Haven. So there are different yeah. identified neighborhoods. So this is a commitment they made. They had four years in which to hire 1,000 people, making sure that 500 of those folks came from the neighborhoods the of need. The immediate neighborhoods around right. Yeah. Yale. So New right. Hill, the Hill, right. yep. And that New Haven Works would be the, the place from which the um, these folks would come, right? So they'd come into New Haven. The New Haven residents would join in with New Haven Works, and New Haven Works and the co- job coaches there who were assigned to work with the various people who came, identify what their skills were, try to figure out which jobs they could match to, and that they would be then identified to the Human Resources Department through New Haven Works at Yale. And they had four years to do that, and after four years, they failed. You know, I want it. <laughs> I want to add just one thing. This was a contractual thing in our contract that they would agree to this. Well, that's what I wanted to say is that it was the union that really put pedal to the right. So local thirty four, yeah, had in their contract an agreement from Yale that they would hire locally. Amazing thing to have on a union contract. Yeah, right. So that they would hire 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 New Haven residents, but we didn't have at that time a very specific mechanism for it until New Haven Works was. I mean. It's so interesting that you say this because the question I was going to ask right before you answer this, because my youngest brother is a graduate of, of Yale. Mm-hmm. So I honestly, every single time we went there, mm-hmm. I just was astounded by the difference between once you step outside the gate yep. and the community that surrounds it. And then the actual the other community that surrounds that community It right. goes from, you know, upper middle class to slum to the university. Correct. And I was wondering if there was something that the university was even working on. Because I've had conversations with several people who lived in that community, just random conversations. Let's say I went to the subway. I went to the Apple store Mm. um, right there. Mm -hmm. And the question, the same answer, I mean, the same answer to that question was, screw the university Mm. because they don't care about the residents around it. And it's important that the, the union is doing what they're doing. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And that's, mm. this was in 2016. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so even now, present day, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it's been because he has I, since graduated. Right. No, I think that's totally correct. Um, you know, it was clear that the university didn't care. They just wanted to build up their little fiefdom, you know, and keep Broadway what it is and so on. What was interesting was we reached a point where it was almost the four or five years, whatever it was, was about to be up. Mm -hmm. And we were looking at the numbers and we figured for the 500, again, it was a thousand people, thousand jobs over four or five years. Which is a low number. It's still low, but 
there was no problem with the with the more affluent neighborhoods. There's an East Rock neighborhood right around the university as well. There was no problem with that. It's a lot of young kids. They just graduated. They're living in New Haven. They get jobs, you know, wherever, you know, within the There was no problem with that 500. But with the other 500, our assessment was that there were about 250, 270 at the most who actually got placed in jobs. People did, and Cheryl did an amazing job. She was a job coach in New Haven Works, and she knew the Yale system. So it was like she she was very, you know, helpful in getting people jobs. But it still wasn't, you know, it still was like halfway there after taking four years. So we had um, an aldermanic hearing um, the Board of Aldermen in New Haven have been very supportive. That's like the local New Haven the, government. Right, right. exactly. That works, works in the, you know, in City Hall. And the university was brought over to explain why you didn't, and the, why you didn't reach the quota of the 500 in the neighborhoods of need. What was amazing was, uh, their answer was, oh, we did. Look at all these people that got jobs. They were counting postdocs. Postdoctoral fellows. Who okay. lived, I mean, hello, first of all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not staying. They're, they're not, not New employees. Haven residents. They're like, they're Yale researchers, you know. And we were like, no, 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 no. So we're we, not. So we we're don't not. cut around the numbers. No, no, yes. no, no, no. Right. Because they acted as if, what are they talking about? We, we met it. And so then out of that, they got very embarrassed because we were walking around the entire campus saying to people, they're counting postdocs for, you know, because there's a few streets where there were like dorms or people, graduate students lived and, you know, the whole nine yards. So what was amazing was because, again, our whole thing is when we embarrass Yale to do the right thing and put a lot of public pressure, they you can move the mountain. So what they ended up doing was having this amazing thing where there's now – They've changed very much the way that Cheryl was describing the pipeline and the pathway. Now, if people enroll, New Haven works works in identifying people that would be the best people to enroll in a community college in New Haven, that they, they take clerical skills, jobs, and so on. And the university, we still are, you know, we haven't... We just started this, so I, I don't know, I can't say any results yet, but the theory they agreed to was that if people pass them, they will find a job for the person. Right. Well, this is, yeah, this this is, is only something that you always have to make sure that you hold Yale to feet to the fire uh, on these things. This isn't the first time we've had a program like this. Back in the, in the 90s, we had a, a viable program that was called the New Haven Residence Training Program. Right. And um, there were there were a few of us with me. There was a woman named Andrea Cole, um, and a few others that had worked um, very closely with the with the neighborhoods to find out what, you know what exactly they needed uh, from us to make sure that uh, people from the New Haven communities were getting jobs. And, and part of that was that there would be a guarantee that you know once you've completed whatever training you were going to have, you could get a job. And it, it took us, uh, you know, a few years to, to finally get Yale to, to come in and meet with them. And then we, we came up with a plan of working through uh, what's called the, the Gateway Community College, um, having a, a program that people could go through that would be mainly female and people with the English as a second language um, uh, and disabled people, you know, could work through this program. Um, we would help pay their tuition when they were in these courses. And once they successfully completed them, 
um, they got entry level jobs at Yale. We had uh, we had a mentor program of people that you know had already been at Yale uh, that didn't have the benefit of, of having an, anybody to help them uh, helping people work through you know what, whatever problems they might have. Um, and virtually everyone who was in that program who started out as an entry level job worked their way up to higher level jobs. Um, that particular program was paid for. By the union, we had a we had a, a fund um, that we could uh, we could use for that, and the agreement that we tried to get Yale to make was that once that funding um, was all used up, that Yale would take over the program, which they said they would do, and then they didn't. <laughs> well, it sounds like that uh, that kind of moves right along the way the path that Yale has always taken, but. Steve, you said something that I think is absolutely critical, and that is that you can never stop holding Yale's feet to the fire. And if there's one lesson that comes out of this, it's that you always have to be in there if you're going to continue to build, continue to expand, and continue to protect the rights, as you said, of neighbors in need and your fellow workers in need. So it's not... It's not just a simple matter of paying your dues, right? Correct. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You, you gonna say anything, Steve? No, that, that actually that's that's correct. I mean, what um, John Wilhelm, who was our our, our lead uh, uh, organizer and uh, and negotiator, uh, one thing that he always kind of told us was that you know you you can't just think of right now. You always have to think of you know what's coming down the line, which is what Yale does. Yale doesn't just think about what's going to happen in the next year. They think what's going to happen in the next five or ten years and how they can manipulate it. I'm just curious why or what is the reason, if this has not happened, that the city council itself for New Haven hasn't gotten involved? Are they not able to? Oh, no, they've been very involved. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, uh, we have a number of people that we actually ran who either are very close friends of ours or, in fact, in some cases, are either union members or work for the union. And we, you know, got a real majority of number of seats on the board of aldermen. This happened in like 2012. Yeah, right, 2011. So we have been very instrumental in that. Um, so this is this is kind of an amazing big mm, picture. Yes. yes. That started out with people making eleven, twelve, and thirteen thousand dollars a year. Right. Right. That have now grown mm. and learned and taught, um, and now have seats on the the board of aldermen of the city of New Haven. Right. So this is this is this is more than a union. It is a movement. Totally. <laughs> and uh, the somehow you've been able to not lose sight of the big picture. I, I, and and I think one of the things that that you hear a lot is. Well, if we organize a union, they'll just move. Mm. Yeah. Well, Yale can't move. No, no Yale's right? not going anywhere. And you know That's an advantage else, we have. And you know who else can't move? Uh, museums can't move. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of places that cannot move immediately. And now, given the way the world operates, I think there are a lot of corporations that just can't move. So the issue of trying to understand the big economic picture, and once again, everything is local. 
I mean, you all have had such a continuing local focus, but connecting it. I want to add something in. We've talked about John Wilhelm. He went on because of the success of the local 34 clerical and technical organizing drive. John went on to become the president of our international Unite Here. And John brought that. There were various forces in the internationals that were a little conservative. There were some people who was like, what do you want to do all this organizing stuff? You should just be a business agent, you know, and just handle grievances. And who cares? Like, let's just deal with our own local. And who cares? But John, because we'd had such a huge victory at Yale, that sort of wrote the ticket for him to become the president of the international. And I just recently was a delegate at our international convention. We have a convention every five years, and it was in Las Vegas this year. And John has since retired. But that brand of organizing has spread across the country. That's why there's so much attention on what we call the culinary union, because that's our union in Nevada. Because all those people, I mean, I was in a room of like a thousand people that they do the same thing we did. Because again, it was success. You can't argue with success. So John became the president and send out all throughout the country. We can't just focus on New Haven and on the Northeast. So there was big attempts in Chicago, in L.A., in Nevada, you know. So our union is really one of the strongest unions in the country, and it's very simple. It's because we do grassroots organizing that is almost a thing of the past. Right. Yeah. As we talk to each other. And really, one of the things, too, is we drew great inspiration from the 60s, from the civil rights movement, the women's movement. A number of the things we did, civil disobedience, silent vigils, there were times where we felt, oh, my God, we're talking and talking and talking. Let's just stand in front of the Yale president's home and be quiet and just hold a candle. And that was, like, super powerful because it was like they know why we're here. We're just looking for respect so that is very infectious. And I feel, again, when I went to the convention this past June, I was just so blown away that the model of organizing that I grew up with is not just in the Northeast in Connecticut. And, and is it fair to say that that model of organizing where you never lose track of the local connections right. and the community connections that, and, the, and the we will do it ourselves? It's right. not a question of someone doing it for us, right. but we'll learn how to do it ourselves. Do you think that, that local 34, 35 organizing that has led through to today, that that is that that was the first model of this really down-deep grassroots organizing in recent years. I mean, it, it did happen once upon a time previously. But in recent years, that's, that's the beauty. And, and when you look at where we live, PJ, you look at Brooklyn, you mm. look at some of the protests that happened around Amazon. Mm. Um, I remember when we started to lose manufacturing jobs mm -hmm. in Queens, and that was because, you know, the swing line staple people reached an agreement to hire local people and then moved to Mexico. Um, I think that was like local 32. Right. BJ. And that the Bloomberg then. You know, Giuliani and then Bloomberg allowed the complete rezoning of Queens that when you when you when you rezone industrial land and make it it becomes luxury high rise uh, apartments mm -hmm. in New York. Um, but 
But that kind of connection that you all have described with Local 32, I mean, Local 34, Local 35, with the, the Unite Here Union is not a vision that has worked here very well. Right. Um, I know, for example, close to home, that there's the most recent successful organizing I know that's happened is at BAM, mm-hmm. where the workers over at the Brooklyn Academy of Music have been recently able to organize successfully. They're still negotiating their first contract. Um, at Long Island University, there was successful um, union organizing maybe four, five, six years ago, and they now have a contract. But they didn't make those. You've got to make those grassroots, you know, connections because I didn't know that, you know, that when I went to the movies at BAM, I needed to support um, union members there. I didn't know that. I mean, mean, we would have all done that. When you're talking, Marie, one of the things that maybe, I don't know if I'm off, but uh, there's a big difference with manufacturing that can be be sent, as we know, all over the place, to Mexico, to here, to there. That's really tough. I mean, a lot of, you know, we're, we're in the service industry. And that's Very where different. that's where our union, you know, the, the, the hotels are staying there. Mm-hmm. You know, the universities are staying there. Uh, in a way, maybe this, we have a little advantage on that. And the service um, industry is one of the largest growth areas of right. jobs. Right. Absolutely. I think the service and construction area. Yeah. Right. Certainly, service. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure about construction. That's a good question, actually. I I think other issues are the ability. Now, some of these places have the ability to pay, but some of them don't care about their reputation. Don't forget, I (laughs) said the key to Yale is they've got the money and they care about their reputation. They don't don't want to be seen. The Yale motto is lux et veritas, which is Latin for light and truth. And we used to have on our picket signs, lux et veritas with a question mark. This is light and truth. You're trying to, you know, people that are like the least paid in the whole community are, are, you know, being, being, uh, you know, told that they can't have this and they can't have that and so on. How light and truth is that? Especially when you look at how much money Yale has and how they keep buying up sectors of New Haven. We pay high taxes, Cheryl and I, as New Haven homeowners, because every time you turn around, Yale has chomped up another bit of land and property that will not get taxed. Which is also displacing the the folks who actually live in that community. The ones who can't even get jobs at on the same right. land, right. You know. right, right, exactly. So maybe the model, the other, the other place to begin to look is how the organizing that has happened at Yale um, could could strengthen and do something with organizing at the other Ivy League colleges, mm-hmm. because that could make a huge difference around the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, because the other Ivy Leagues don't have that kind of strength. Harvard, actually, the clerical and technical workers at Harvard are organized. They're represented by the UAW. I'm sorry, the United Order Order Workers. And it's it's interesting because the the area that surrounds Harvard Mm. isn't the same situation that the area that surrounds uh, Uh New Haven. No. Mm -hmm. No, very different there. So thank you. Um, Thank you. This is is hopefully a picture. Um, a picture and a, and a long kind of mural 
that just needs to go on. It's not, it's not a film that comes to an end. It's not a photograph that just stops. It is a mural that has to keep being built and painted and taken forward. Um, if, there, um, if there's anything that I think is important, there's a, there's a line that says that if any unions or any movement or group is going to survive, the members will have to know their history. And that's the reason for the usable past. That's the reason for this podcast. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Marie. Thanks so much, oh, Marie. Thank you. thank you, Steve, Cheryl, Aldo, PJ. Thank you. <laughs>